glad everybody's here today. Just uh, going to have, uh, we're going to kind of enjoy a moment together where we uh, just spend some time uh, in, in the text today and, uh, and just enjoy uh, a moment together as we listen for a word from God for each of us, especially now that we're so close to the end that our kids are just about to go to school and we're about to get our life, lives back uh, in some form, uh, which, is, which is great. I want to tell you something about something really exciting. Uh, today, we have a new room uh, called Journey Prep wh- that we've been working on for the past few weeks. This is a new ministry for our fifth and sixth graders. Uh, they're going to have uh, their own room and after service. Brad's going to remind you if you want to make your way down there and go and take a look. Uh, this is really just an exceptional uh, new room that I know our, uh, our children's ministry, I know Julie and Christy and Crystal and, and just everybody's been working on uh, getting this room ready, and Tori is the one who leads that room, and so your fifth and sixth graders will be in there uh, today, starting today, which is really exciting for them. And obviously, it's called Journey Prep uh, to kind of uh, get them ready to to move into students. We sort of realized that sixth graders were a little bit young to go into students, and so it's wonderful that our church uh, just has the opportunity to to help us step forward with these little these little ministries. And today is really a sermon about the future. It's about what is to come, um, that, that the song in Christ alone about where we stand is sort of about what has already been done and what has paved the way for what is to come. Uh, uh, today's sermon, if you have a title, if I did have a title for it, it would be called The Spirit uh, is the Future of Our Faith. This is what Jesus talks about consistently, and it's not something that when we start out in faith that we fully understand. But the Spirit, when we, w- when we come into connection with the Spirit, something happens and sets our faith on a future-driven path. You know, all of us in this room, we have a past. Some of our pasts are really good. Uh, some of our pasts are maybe not so good. Maybe some of us had some really positive relationships and some beautiful homes growing up, and some of us had quite the opposite. Uh, and everybody brings whatever past they have to uh, you know, this experience of faith as well. One of the things that I've realized as I've gotten a little older is that you can't ever go home again. I think sometimes we think this when we're, when we're younger. One day I'm going to go back and do that. And, you know, one of the things that, that we do in our lives is we try to expose our kids to experiences that maybe we had growing up. And so we, we recently took a trip and took our kids and uh, got some family time, which we haven't had in a few years. And we took them on a safari because now they're old enough to appreciate it. And, uh, you know, we don't, we, we're quite at just at the point now that we don't want to feed them to the animals, um, you know. So, so we got to experience some cool things. And our kids uh, had some first experiences that were just powerful, experiences that I had as a kid. And you can see just some of their reactions to things. Uh, going and seeing uh, some of the African night sky that, that I grew up with and sharing that. Our kids have kind of seen that a little bit. It's just absolutely amazing. And these pictures really don't don't do it justice. You get kind of close and your heart gets going on some of these, uh, some of these videos. These are, these are not petting zoo animals. These are wild animals and they'll definitely, uh, they, they get kind of close. And, and for those of you that have never had these experiences, I'd encourage you to try to do that. Sharing uh, with our kids, getting to, getting to do this, getting to experience things. I know that you and your families, whether it be trips you've had or places that you've gone to, um, you want to share some of those things with your kids and with your family. You want them to see what is home or what was home for you. Our kids got to um, just experience 
some amazing, uh, amazing things. But the, the one thing, this is a picture of the Milky Way that I took with my iPhone, which is crazy. But they get to hang out with the cousins, uh, that, they don't, that they don't have any cousins here because Haley's, you know, an only child. Her family's pretty small. Um, but the reality is that they got to actually spend some time together. And so we got to have those moments and share with our, our family. This is where we came from. But the reminder is always this. You can't go home again. It'll never be what it was when you were there. One of the main things that whenever I, I deal with people or counsel with people is that sometimes we look back when we, shou- when we should look forward. It's a, it's a struggle that we all have. And I try to remind people, you can't live life through the rearview mirror. You can't drive your car looking like this. Although I think that would be an improvement instead of driving your car doing this, right? But the reality is you cannot go forward if your focus is on something that reflects only the past. This is why the writers of the New Testament, and especially Paul, he wants us to know this language that the old has gone and the new has come. Yes, the old is comfortable and normal and it feels right and we know what it is, but there is a whole big future out there and that is the place where God is choosing to work. This is why in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. This is why when we have baptism Sundays that say made new, it's tied to this theology and this verse that says when we come into Christ, into a fullness of relationship with Christ, our lives are made new. It doesn't mean that we become different people or that our past doesn't matter, but it means that we are fully stepping into our future with Christ. When Paul is writing Galatians to this church, to this church in Galatia that is struggling with some of these things, the call of what he says is the law represents the past. The Jewish law, the law that Moses got at Mount Sinai, is part of a past. It's a good past. It's, a, it's kind of a sordid past. It's not every story about the past is good, but that represents the law of God. Now there is this new thing called the Spirit, and the Spirit is our future. The Spirit is the future. Jesus talked about this with his disciples, but obviously uh, they didn't really understand. John 14 is this is this passage of scripture that I'm going to read just a couple of ideas here so that you can that you can see it. When Jesus, this is right after he's washed their feet in chapter 13 at the last, last supper. He tells them this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms, and if it were not so, I would, would have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and I'll take you to be with me so that you will also be where I am. You know the way to the place where I am going. In verse 15, he kind of goes on a little bit because there's an argument. Thomas is like, now we don't know the way. Can you give us a map? And Jesus kind of unpacks that for them. But then in verse 15, he picks it up again. He goes, if you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate or another helper to help you and be with you forever, the spirit of truth. I'm going to talk to God, and God's going to send the spirit of truth to you. The world cannot accept him because it it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you. 
and will be in you. I am not leaving you as orphans. I will come to you. And then in verse 26, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give you as the world the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He tells them that something is about to happen, that something is about to change. And it's a beautiful part where Jesus says, the Holy Spirit was promised. Jesus is the one who says, it's coming. And then right after uh, he goes through the cross and grows through all these things and spends time with his disciples, then his message changes a little bit. It was once promised, but now the Holy Spirit is here. And even more than just being here, it's not just about being present. The Holy Spirit is working. And on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, we see the apostles getting up and sharing and speaking and doing powerful things because the Holy Spirit is here. It was promised, and it is now working. It also tells us, Paul writes a lot about the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And it says, when you were also included in Christ, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Remember what Jesus told you you'd get? You'll get that when you make a commitment in life and in faith and this Spirit that marks you is a guarantee of your inheritance. It's a, it's a deposit. God's put a deposit down on you. You're on layaway with God. And he's paid the price for you. And when your life comes to an end, you know where you're going. You know what you're getting because you have the spirit in your life. And you will have an inheritance, which is the redemption of those who are God's possession. Because God is great and all praise and glory should be given to Paul is saying is the future of faith has begun. The future of faith has begun. Today we're going to be in Galatians chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. And I'm going to kind of try to go through these texts just a little bit. And we're going to talk about some stories and I'm going to tie it all in hopefully at the end if that works well. Now I do want to tell you if ever you write a letter to somebody or get somebody a card don't write the line of Galatians 3 verse 1 as your first line to them. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, okay? That can't be good because the word witch is actually in there, okay? That, that's not a good word to you. You're just an idiot, you know. Dear village idiot, okay? Not the way to start a letter, right? But, but he is frustrated with them because he says, you're acting as fools. Who has bewitched you? What he means by that is simply this. It's kind of like you've gone to a magic show and you believe that that's actually real. We all know that magic is illusion. It's distraction. It's misdirection. And he's saying somebody has come in and has said something to you and now you've started to believe that as truth. And I need to set the record straight because it's a big deal. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive 
the Spirit by the works of the law? In other words, you doing everything right and being obedient, is that what brought about the Spirit of God in this end time? Or by believing what you have heard, are you so foolish? Are you so blind is what he really means. After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law? or by believing what you have heard. So Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's going to use an old image, an image that everybody knows. This guy named Abraham. And if you think back to your Sunday school days, okay, now who was Abraham? What did, what did he do? I sort of remember he had, he had a, a wife named Sarah, that he went to Egypt, and then he pretended she was his sister, and then that. I do remember that they were kind of old, and, and I remember that, that uh, you know, th- they weren't able to have children. I, I remember that. Paul is using this as an image to set up what he's going to call the spirit of faith versus the law of faith. And he uses this word righteousness. Now, righteousness sounds like a real good church word. What it means is people who act right, people who live with a moral code or a moral center. And he's saying, listen, Abraham lives at a time before there is a law. And then we have the beautiful story of Abraham and Isaac, but it's not really that beautiful a story. It's kind of a weird story because Abraham and Sarah are married and God tells them one day, you're going to have children. And if you remember their response, they laughed because they were like, God, we don't know if you understand basic biology but we are old enough to be grandparents. We're not about to start a thing. We have given up that dream and all the pain and, and difficulty of that. We're not there anymore. And God says, no, no, I'm going to bless you with a child. Now, it takes a decade before Isaac comes along. So before that time, they kind of, you know, take matters into their own hands. And, and Sarah says, hey, I'm not getting any younger. This is probably not going to happen for me. But here's Hagar, one of my maidservants. And she is young, and, you know, if you lay with her, she'll probably have a baby, and we can raise it as our own, which was common practice back in the day. This is not something weird or lewd. This is something that they would do quite often, and they would because they owned the, the slave, so any child that the slave had, they owned. It was technically their child anyway, and so she, Hagar gets pregnant, and they have Ishmael, and Ishmael's a fine boy. He does really well, but then what happens is, God says, that's not what I meant. I want to give you a miraculous child. And there's a reason for this because I'm doing something that you don't understand right now. We have the birth of Isaac and then Hagar and Ishmael kind of have to be sent away uh, because there's a lot of jealousy and rivalry. And so there's these two nations that sort of emerge out of this story. But then if you go to Genesis 22, we have a part of the story that's a little awkward and a little difficult for us to read. It simply tells us in Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1, sometime later, meaning that, that Isaac's probably a, a younger boy, he's about to go into the, you know, the prep ministry, that's about how old he is, 
God tested Abraham, and he said, Abraham? And he says, well, here I am. And he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain that I will show you. And we know the story. It takes them three days to get there. Uh, Abraham and Isaac go up onto the mountain. Isaac is fully ready to kill his son for the Lord. And we've had sermons, and I've talked about this in the past, what those three days were probably like for Abraham, what was really going on in the story. And right at the last minute, the angel comes and says, no, no, don't hurt the boy. They find a, a ram in the thicket. They sacrifice the ram on Mount Moriah, and then they, and then they go down. And this is a story <clears throat> that everybody knows and a story that is credited that Abraham is righteous because he is obedient, not because of a law. Now, need I remind you, if you read the Bible chronologically, the law only comes later after Moses. Abraham did not grow up with the Sabbath. He did not grow up with the laws. He did not grow up with the Ten Commandments. But he is a moral person because he is obedient to God. And a lesson that we learn about Abraham and Isaac is that obedience really matters. When God asks you to do something, that's what matters. It's not about a set of rules that if you just obey the right rules, you'll be, you'll be good enough, which is unfortunately what happens over the millennia that follow. People start to think, if, if, if I can be good enough for God, if I can just obey all the rules, then somehow I'll be good enough. And this is where the fracture starts to take place because Abraham was obedient. There's an interesting line in that Genesis 22 passage where he says, I want you to take your son, your only son. Is anyone problem with that? Abraham has two sons. So maybe it doesn't mean only. Maybe it means special. Maybe it means chosen. Maybe it means the miraculous. And now we're back. In Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, it says, understand, this is Paul talking to the church now, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything that's written in the book of law. Clearly no one who relies on law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. You see, what he's saying in the midst of this text is that our faith initiates 
the Spirit. Our faith begins a process of God doing overwhelming and supernatural things in the midst of us. It's so funny, though. What Paul is saying, it is, it is not our works of law. It is not how good you are or if you do all the right things. And yet when we've, when we've gone to church, most of our past experience has been what? Let me tell you the things that you need to do right. Let me tell you the things that you can't do wrong. And if you do the, the enough right things right and try to stay away from as many bad things, then you'll be good enough for God. And that's what the people that Paul is writing to believe. If we're good enough, then God will give us something. And he's saying, that's not the way that it works. When we are obedient in faith, that initiates the promises of God that he will share himself with us. And when we come back to powerful texts, like the one in Genesis 22, where he says, you know, I want you to take your only son, and I want you to give him to me as an offering. passage that kind of sounds like that that we all know in the book of John chapter 3 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life it's amazing that God retells Abraham's story in his own son the only difference is this. When Isaac walked up the hill, Abraham was prepared to offer him as a sacrifice, but God stopped it. When Jesus walked up a hill, the father was ready to give up his son, but the difference is he allowed it to happen for you, for me. To say this system is not working. And I'm willing to give all. I'm willing to give everything so that people will find life. It's not about a law. It's not about a set of rules. It's about a relationship with the Father. The only son that remained alive in the Old Testament was given in the New. And the only difference is, is so that God could remove all the barriers between us and him. Our obedience. God unlocks the spirit in us, not our perfection, not how good we are, not how many of the right things we do, but when we choose faith, it unlocks the spirit in us. This is why when we share communion, communion is what I would call a microcosm of obedience. It's a reminder of, of where we've come from, of what we've done, and hopefully you grab these when you came in today. Even when we share in the Lord's Supper, it is an act of obedience. Jesus gives them some commands at the Last Supper and says, I want you to do these things in remembrance of me. And we act in obedience towards the sacrifice of Jesus. But once we have shared in the sacrifice of Jesus, it changes the way we act away from it, how we move away from this, how we how we incorporate this and what we become. I think sometimes growing up, you used to think, well, if you had really made a lot of mistakes this week, you, you took this and it was kind of a moment of God's forgiveness, which it is. It's a moment that reminds us of what Jesus has done, 
that God has given his only son. But it falls short if it's just about us. When we take it, when we receive it together, we remember a body broken and blood poured out so that we could be saved, that we could live in obedience and receive the spirit of God. So Father, today as we share in the body and the blood of Jesus, may we take a moment to assess our lives, to to just take stock of where we are. Father, to maybe give ourselves give ourselves space (laughs) to realize that our not just our sin is taken away, but our guilt and our shame. And as we share in the blood of Jesus, may it wash us clean. May this be a moment that gives us new eyes, new hearts. Father, we pray that you would bless us as we share in these simple symbols. ahead and share in the body and the blood of Christ. Take a moment to be reflective. If you do need prayer, there'll be some people up here. Sometimes we just need to lay something down. But share in this today. Receive from God.